This is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and you just tuned in to RM Podcast FL. Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome back to RM Podcast FL. Happy Tuesday or whatever day of the week you're listening to this episode on. First and foremost, I want to thank you for investing your time and trusting me with your time and tuning in to our show. I'm super excited about today's episode, you guys. I feel like I say this a lot, but if you listened to last week's episode, you definitely know who's in this week's episode. Yes, we're talking about Alan Sang. <laughs> Alan, he is a negotiation coach with over a decade of experience in training hundreds of professionals and definitely specializing in the sectors of engineering, technology, manufacturing, biomedical, and aerospace. Born in Hong Kong, raised in Africa, and educated in the U.S. I mean, you don't find that every day, guys, do you? <laughs> and he was also named top 20 under 40 for uh, from Blue Ridge Business Journal, which is really awesome. He currently serves as an advisor committee for RAMP, which is Original Business Accelerator. Personally trained and mentored by late Jim Camp, Alan is currently in the North America and Asia-Pacific negotiation coach for Camp System. So as you can tell, our guests are just getting better and better and better every episode. I'm super stoked. <laughs> also, he has helped clients successfully negotiate with companies such as Google, Boeing, PepsiCo, Verizon, Cat, Caterpillars, GE, Microsoft. I mean, we're talking about Fortune 100 companies, not even Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, you guys. So without losing any time, I definitely want you to enjoy this episode. And like I mentioned earlier, if you listened to the episode last week uh, with Kwame Christian and Dan Oblinger, well, let me tell you, Alan is very close friends with the guys. And I know we tasted a little bit on the last week's episode, but we are about to have an awesome, awesome event here in Jacksonville, Florida with all three of them uh, hosting an event. So stay tuned for that one. We'll get you the details. I'm super excited for that. But I have a special question for Alan, too. Because his best friends actually picked a question for him. Um, let's listen to the question actually really quick. What is the problem with win-win negotiation mindset? Oh, or even better. Say, I had two great negotiation experts on the show, <laughs> and they said that win-win is the best way to handle negotiations. They said, no, why you they, they said the that. definition of a great negotiation is a win-win. <laughs> And they, they asked me to ask you, tell me why you agree with that statement. How <laughs> 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 oh, right are much. they? <laughs> so as you can tell, his very good friends are playing jokes on Alan. But I did ask him the question, so stay tuned to definitely see his answer. And I hope you guys enjoy the episode. So thank you so much, guys, for tuning in and investing your time to RM Podcast FL. Just like I mentioned on the bio, today's guest speaker is Alan Singh. Hi, Alan. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, Romina? I am good. Thank you so much for taking your time and being a part of the podcast. Oh, and I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so for you, my listeners that listened to the previous episode, we have Alan's, two of Alan's very good friends, which they reserved a bonus question for it too. So stay tuned till the end. I'm excited to see who's answer on that. <laughs> yes, I'm talking about Kwame Kirshen and Dan Albinger. They have a special question for you. 
Oh, great. But before we even get started to the juicy questions, I'll pass on the mic to you, Alan, if you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what do you do so they can better get introduced to your work? Well, I coach people on negotiation. What that means is I help them uh, overcome any uh, fear of negotiation. I help them build strong agreements with uh, their counterparts, whether it's with suppliers and customers or the internal teams. Uh, investors, uh, partners, and then finally, basically just help people get what they want without having to make unnecessary compromises. I work with uh, business owners, executives, professionals, and uh, I coach them on how to have difficult conversations without having it become violent. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, to build a strong agreement and to have an easy conversation, on a, <laughs> you know, on a high stressful moment. Absolutely. So managing emotions and, and developing the skills on how to manage our own emotions is critical. So let me ask you this before we even jump into a conversation, because as you can tell, you guys, Alan specializes when it comes to business world towards negotiation and towards getting to the to the root of the issue or dealing with contracts and, and big things like that. Tell me a little bit of like the backstage of before you even step into a moment of negotiation, how much research goes on the back end? Because a lot of people sometimes feel like you have the skills and you have the knowledge and you can just dive right in. But tell me about a research process before you jump into the table. Sure. One of my favorite uh, quotes actually come from uh, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, which is strategy without tactics is the slowest path to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. What that means is we have to think about what we're going to do and to have the skills to do it when you're in the hot seat, right? But preparation and, and having the, the, taking the time to prepare and to strategize, to understand the, the problem and to see the problem clearly, to know what you are trying to solve in the next event is one of the most important things you can do in a negotiation. There are a lot of books out there written on, I'll call it the sexy part of negotiation. How do we say things? How can we influence a decision at that moment? But they miss a lot of the strategic planning part of it. So you, you get to win occasionally, but you're not gonna have consistent, repeatable, scalable success. So in terms of negotiation, one of the things that actually clients hire me to do is to come in and help them strategize with the team. They have a negotiation, I come in and I collect information. What brought us to this point? What's the next step? What is the desired outcome that you want out of the next step? And usually that is not, can I get them to sign a contract? Can I get them to do this? It's what has to happen in their mind in order for the next step to move smoothly. And then the, the thing is we have to un uncover what are some of the, the things that we don't know, which is the research. A lot of times people go into a negotiation and um, they think they're negotiating with a decision maker until I ask them, okay, great. So you want to have this business with this company um, and it's been three months. Okay, great. And you are about to make prototypes. Fantastic. And what happens after you make the prototype? He goes, well, 
I don't know. That's when they have to pick between us and a competitor, okay? And how do they make those decisions? How are the decisions being made? Who makes them? Are you talking to all the decision makers? Do, do they get to see your value? Oh no, I'm just talking to someone who just gave us the RFQ and a proposal to look at. I'm like, okay, wait, if you don't know what they're looking for in terms of value, why they would even pick you over another company or how decisions are made, it makes it us very difficult to go into a negotiation because you're almost going in with a sense of hope. Yeah. I hope if I do this, I'll, I'll get the deal. If I make the prototype and it's really good, I'll get the deal. But I don't really even know whether the specs that they're giving us is the specs that they really care about. All right. So having, having a clear picture before we step into a negotiation, that is critical. We go into negotiation, sometimes we only want one decision. And the decision is, can you get me to the real decision maker? Right. But obviously we're not going to put it that way because it becomes threatening. Yeah. So we usually go, well, who else needs to be involved with this decision? Right. And then we'll find out. So the whole process itself from day one, you get introduced, let's say X company wants to partner up with you to, you know, have the first meeting to making the prototype to negotiating. It's a cycle. It might take Absolutely. six months, a year, five years. It depends on the contract and the type of product that we're dealing. Absolutely. How do you practice patience? Because sometimes companies or business owners, they want immediate results or they lose their patience and they lose their investment towards this contract. How do you practice patience on a long-term <laughs> negotiation? That's a good question. I am actually, let me put it this way. A lot of my clients think I'm very patient. Because I don't actually really know. They go, Alan, you're so patient. I'm like, no, I'm actually not very patient. And that's why I'm in negotiation. I want to take something that would, that would have taken seven months or seven meetings or 10 meetings to complete. And I want to get it done in one. But I don't have that need. It's just that when we practice the skills and the process and follow the principles, and the, that just happens. But in terms of how do we practice patience? I think from what I'm hearing you is we want to move a, we want to move a process along, but we are actually at the speed of our counterpart. We can only move as fast as the other counterpart wants to move and we can influence it. And there's a, there's a process to it. It's kind of like dating, right? I can't just become 18 years old one day, and I'm of marriage age, knock on the door of a beautiful lady and go, hey there, I am, I am able to marry. Would you like to marry me? No matter what I do, that's just not going to happen. We're short-circuiting a lot of uh, uh, meetings in between, getting to know the person, maybe meet at a party. Or it might happen, but not a good result. Correct. Like you, you, in some countries, you may, you may have a matchmaker go and knock on the door of someone, just say, I know someone who may want to marry your daughter, right? Because I grew up in Africa, they're, they're different marriage processes, but it's not the result that people want. So let's say in, in the West, there is a natural process to the dating, getting to know someone, what they care about, what's important to them, 
and then the proposal comes at the end, right? Of a long, maybe three month process. Well, maybe in, in Vegas, some, someone would get married in 24 hours. I don't know, but there is still that process. You can't just meet someone on the street and ask them to marry you. That's, so in terms of, uh, so in terms of uh, patience, I tell my clients, when you feel the, the pressure to close a deal with a client, most likely you do not have enough opportunities in the pipeline. That makes sense? Yeah. The funny thing is, the more pressure you feel, the more pressure you feel you want to put on your counterpart, and the faster they're going to run away, or they're just going to go dark. Mm-hmm. In sales, people always go, Alan, they, they really liked our product. They were so excited. They were very interested. They want to move forward. And now all of a sudden, nothing. I've sent emails. I called. Then I send another email. Then I I call. I even send a letter, handwritten letter, and nothing. Right? They just go dark. It's too pushy. And that's one thing that I've seen, for example, in car sales. Since I worked in car sales, a lot of people would burn leads because that would be too pushy. And sometimes it's, it's more than one, one problem. It's not just the salesperson. Sometimes you probably know this in the car sales the manager may be pressuring the salespeople to go close the deal. So their neediness or their desperation comes from above. So sometimes in a company to exercise patience, there's a structural change that has to happen in the organization to remove that neediness, to remove that desperation, to put in good practice. So instead of finding only having three leads that you have to push every single day, call them five times a day, I, I need you to have enough, enough in your pipeline and then you're qualifying them and processing them and seeing which one makes sense to move to the next step. Helping them to make that decision, giving them the information to move it forward. And so first of all, before you do that, you have to be able to make good decisions. Ultimately, Negotiation is making good decisions on your side and influencing decisions on your counterpart side. That's it. I love it. it. What, uh, I know you shared a story with me. I'd love the audience to know this too. The longest negotiation that took for you. The longest negotiation that took for me, um, They are actually internal negotiations on my client's internal team. Hmm. With their customer, it was actually different. With internal teams, what happens is sometimes change is the most difficult thing to take place within an organization. So there's different cultures that has been embedded. There's different behaviors. um, There's different patterns. And whenever there's change, there's threats. And if someone have been successful to a certain point, change is, just means danger to them. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge to a status quo. So internal change, working within the organization, that can be some of the most difficult negotiation you're going to come across. That is very, very true. Internal, it's, it's always been done this way, and now it's changing, and you have just a lot of people it's a lot of emotions also it's a lot of thinking a lot of emotions they are going crazy i would say sometimes with internal changes 
just think about this for a moment, right? I mean, I, I have clients that negotiate with their customers and a lot of times they're not happy and they're threatening to leave. Um, they may be threatening lawsuits. They may be threatening not paying. And all those are actually relatively easy negotiations compared to when people have decided they're going through a divorce. And I've helped both. I don't do divorces. I've only done it in cases where they're my friends and I'm kind of coaching them through the process. And it's very difficult. And a lot of times those, uh, those baggages or hurt feelings have built up over years and years and years. And so trying to change that is not a simple one day overcoming saying the right thing, just going with the right tone, right body language, and then turn around. No, that's not going to happen in one day. Now, let's talk a little bit about nonverbal because you mentioned tone, body language, this whole nonverbal world, which is a different topic. How do you show authority or how do you show the other party you're in power with just nonverbal communication? <laughs> a lot of people ask me that and I give an answer that usually kind of shocks them. I actually let the other party have all the power they want. So I actually you, appear You let smaller. them or you let them think they do have the power? Oh, I let them think. Okay. Letting, letting them think they have all the power helps them feel they're in control. So in some cases, in order to help the other person feel comfortable, I may actually just, just put my seat and just lower it that lower. Just, you know, those uh, uh, um, pneumatic seats? I'll just go huh. it and go down lower because it makes that person feels in control. I don't need to feel in control because um, I pretty much feel in control. So when I don't have a fear, I'm not afraid of loss. I'm not afraid of he can hurt me. I'm not afraid of uh, anything that I don't know about. Uh, I'm not afraid of that person rejecting me. When I, when I go in and I've managed my emotions and I have no fear, the main thing is I want the other party to feel comfortable. Feeling in control helps them feeling comfortable. So I may actually make myself smaller. I know all the different handshakes, how to meet someone ha like straight on instead of a dominant handshake. And I know the submissive handshake. I naturally just go with a more of a submissive handshake to let them feel comfortable. But when I teach someone who is not confident, then you want to meet the handshake straight on, right? Like that. You're meeting them equal to equal. But if I want someone to be comfortable, and usually what, even when you're meeting with a buyer, the buyer sometimes is afraid that what is this sales team coming to do? What is this, this, this uh, a supplier coming to negotiate? And they get nervous about a meeting. They feel like they're going to be taken advantage of. And so for the first few seconds, I'm already trying to help them feel comfortable. So I'm not leaning in. I am not I'm not trying to make myself bigger. My arms are not akimbo. I am not sitting on the chair like that. I am not trying to occupy space. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to dominate the situation, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I like the fact that you mentioned handshake because personally, I, I can tell a lot by the person just by their handshake. 
Like I can tell if somebody is dominant or if somebody is not dominant just by the way they shake their hands. Absolutely. Sometimes they crush hands just because they know they can crush hands. And, and even as a guy, I go, wow, that was really, that was a, that was a hand crusher, but you've got to know your hand crusher. It's not like someone woke up that morning and they learn how to handshake and, and they have been uh, 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 slinging sledgehammers all day long. So sometimes they do that because they know they can dominate the situation. And a lot of people have been taught, be confident, show power, shake a hand. I'm like, I'm going to let you shake my hand, but I will not let you crush my hand. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It does make sense a lot. And I mean, starting from the basics, handshake is very important because that's the first introduction you might have uh, with anybody new, really, that you shake your hand. So it kind of, you know, just to stay neutral and then kind of read the other person more. That's important. But I want to go back to a little bit when you said you'll make the other party feel like they're in charge. That shows a lot. Like you let your ego out of your way because you know, you know more. How do you like, what's the inner process for letting your ego go? Cause if I'm, if I'm authority, if I know more than you, but I'm going to let you think of like, you know, more, if that makes sense. Like what's the, the inner that process actually, in there? <clears throat> so that is one thing that I have to process before going to a meeting. And you are right. I am actually not trying to compare whether I know more than the counterpart, because that actually seldom ever happens. We have to go in with a curious mind to discover what's going on in their world. But the, the, the process we go through is there's a lot of biases that we have, whether it's confirmation bias or we have a paranoid social cognition going on where someone, through, because of the, the way they've been brought up, has been taken advantage of all their lives. They start to think that people will take advantage of them every interaction. So sometimes people are defensive. We all have different biases, right? And just going into negotiation, we have to kind of process that. Do I have any of those biases? Sometimes you see someone who is good at something and we assume they're good at everything. Everything. That's so true. Right? Or you may see someone performing well in a test in the beginning first five minutes. And research have found out that, okay, let me back a little bit. Research has found out that People think who someone who performs well in a test in the first few minutes that they are actually going to perform well overall. So they had two person take a test while they observe, observed. One did well in the beginning and then progressively got worse. The other one started poorly, but then progressively got better. At the end, they asked the observer, who do you think did better? They all went with the one who started well. So that is a bias even though both of them performed just as well according to the test. They, they were, what they were doing is they're trying to see as observers, do we have biases? And we do. We may see someone who may be more dominant in their body language or the way they dress and make a lot of assumptions. When you say you're meeting with, an, uh, let's say, um, an account, when you meet an account, in, in, immediately in your mind, you're going to think, good with numbers, accuracy, detail, right? That's what you may think. You create the picture already in your mind. Right. And those 
will actually become assumptions that people do not validate. And if they don't validate and verify and clarify those during a negotiation, those assumptions can serve to undermine them. All our biases, all our cultural, our tradition, our personal, our environmental, the way we grew up, our in-group, all those things that help shape who we are can become something that can, uh, can be an obstacle in you negotiating effectively and cause you to make assumptions that are not warranted. That is very, very true because um, like I try to be as, for example, as open-minded as possible because I, I met the American culture, for example, at a younger age at 17, but then my family met the American culture on their 40s so they already have those biases stamped on their brain. So they, it's not easy to create new opinions or to even have them. But the, and also like the, the sooner you have an open mind, the sooner you face, you know, new things, it would be more education too. Oh, absolutely. So it, 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 this goes into sometimes ethics and morals we make moral and ethical judgment based on our own experiences and how we see the world, right? Whether a person is more of a liberal or more of a conservative, the way they look at the world is judged through morality. So let's say you're negotiating, let's say you are a conservative and you know you're negotiating against a liberal, you may start going, the, he's a liberal, she's a liberal, and therefore they think this way. And, and I, I've been in meetings where they go, I'm sure that person will do this. I'm sure that person reacts this way. Or a common one, oh, I'm sure that they're, going to, they're going to push back on the pricing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jack up the price and let them bring it down. And I'm like, uh, okay, so what happens if they look at your first price and they don't negotiate that way? You just anchored yourself to a high number and you lost a deal before you even got into the race, right? And that, that you actually covered my next question because I was going to ask about the top bottom negotiation because a lot of people sometimes tend to jack up the price very high because they know like, like car sales, for example, you put so many add-ons and you jack up the price so many high. Sometimes people will just try to negotiate and then you get bottom. But those are, those are case scenarios that you're burning yourself because somebody will say, oh, no, this is too much and just walk away. A lot of times, that is, that is so true. A lot of times, uh, that's what people do, right? They anchor a number and they, they, they go, okay, I want to sell for $10. And, um, and I'm, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say $20. And then I, we're going to fight a little bit. And then we'll go from $20 and $5 down to $10. And, 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 and I agree on that because that's what negotiation is about. And I can tell you from thousands of negotiations I've been involved with, we don't do that. We don't do that because I'll tell you the, the negative effect of that is I have seen people who do it. And what happens is the perception of that guy is he's a shyster. And this word, I know you have uh, listeners from around the world. Shyster is someone who is almost like a, like a con man, right? Like a, someone who is going to cheat you. And so when you go into negotiation, I've seen where they have sat down. And they're trying to sell a product or a service and they'll say, okay, uh, it's going to be $10,000 a widget on this, uh, this product we're going to make for you. Mm -hmm. The other person goes, wow, that is high. Can you do any better? 
and the person, the salesperson immediately looks down, look at their, their piece of paper and start crunching numbers to lower the, the price. And I go, and, and I had the opportunity to observe and the customer, who the, the prospect that was about to buy, had a look of disgust and sit back and go, almost deflated because in their mind they figured, so you were gonna rip me off until I asked for a discount? I'll tell you a funny story. My wife and I went on Alaskan cruise and um, a friend of mine came with us and we went to those, you know, like they'll go to a port, go to Juneau or go to different places. And, and what do you do? You just walk around the town and shop, right? Mm-hmm. Some shopping. Look, I don't, I hardly wear watches. I don't wear a watch, but I'm shopping for watches just for fun. Yeah. I go into a place. I'm looking at the Breitling watch. They're kind of like, they're kind of cool, but, but I'll never put a Breitling on my hand because growing up in Africa, your watch is going to be stolen or hand chopped. We joke about it. So don't wear an expensive watch. So I'm looking at this watch and this guy comes over and says, do you like the watch? I'm like, yeah, I like the watch. So I said, I look at the price and I said, oh, that's, that's high. He has a calculator in his hand and he's punching that calculator like crazy. And then he comes up with a number and he shows it at me. And in my mind, I immediately go, where, where, where did he get that, all those decision information to come down? In seconds. Right? Exactly. So I actually, I did that three or four times. And each time he's punching his calculator and coming up with another number. And so at this point, my wife is just walking around smiling. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, let's see how far I can go with this. I wasn't going to buy it, but I don't trust a guy either. So to back up, when people do that, you're actually training your customers not to trust you. Basically, your first number is going to be fake, and I have to beat you down to get to the number. It's right? funny. It's funny. The story reminds me of a story in Pazar in Istanbul with myself <laughs> and um, the big Pazar. Uh, I was trying to just get a nice set of coffee, you know, like the coffee cups and coffee And when I was in Turkey. And I was speaking English, and the guy had no idea I'm Albanian, which it's very common culture. And I, also and I also speak Turkish, but the guy had no idea. So I was speaking English the whole time, and my friend was speaking English. My friend looked Turkish. Um, she, she was, I was like, just let me do it. I was like, just, just you go to the other store. I just want to kind of see, because it's always the Pazar negotiation. Right. So the guy writes a number, and I just look in, and I said, no, it's too much. And then he scratches it and writes another number. <laughs> And I scratch it and I literally wrote like the lowest number possible in there. And he said, no, I won't do it. And I said, okay, have a good day. And I left and I wanted a nice, you know, setup, but I'm like, this is at the entrance of the Pazar. So it's not a big deal. I, before I finally left, I went back there and I just kind of looked back at it. He said, do you want it? And I said, yes. And I wrote the number. I said, my number. And he said, okay. So I got oh. it with my number. And then at the end, I was like, nice. I was like, talk to Shekuler. I was like, thank you very much in Turkish after I paid. The guy's face dropped. But yes, because thing, he thought, yeah. Yeah. And like, these are the assumptions that you make. You don't know who you're talking to sometimes. Like, this is silly. We're talking about probably like $20, $30 that he was trying to up the price. But is that she speaks English? <laughs> she 
doesn't know the negotiation culture that we have like in the Mediterranean area. And your story just reminded me that he was just scratching and scratching. And finally I was like, yeah, I would like it. That was like my number and end up getting it for pro like ten, five bucks. Like wow. the whole thing out of like 40 amazing. something. I was trying to sell it. <laughs> that is amazing. I learned a lot from uh, my mom and my mom negotiates like you. And I told you I grew up in Africa and I was there for 15 years and I would go to the marketplace with her and we'll buy oranges. And over there, the unit of, uh, of, of monetary value is they call the CDs. And uh, when you buy orange, they will tell because you're obviously Asian or they, they will give this price to foreigners, especially Americans as well, because I think Americans was well known in Africa as they don't negotiate. They don't negotiate. So they'll say 200 CDs and my mom will start cussing in African language. And then next minute she's leaving with like two CDs per orange. You see the difference. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. So she would just beat them up on. And I see that and haggling in the marketplace is actually, it's actually common in a, in a flea market is common. It's fun, right? Yeah. Because it's a commodity because it's a thing you don't really need. You don't really need that coffee. It's nice to have, but you don't need that coffee. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story about one of my clients. And he's an engineer and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't do negotiation or sales. And he was negotiating with a new prospect. And this new prospect was in a, in a situation where they needed to move from one supplier to our, my client because the other supplier went out of business. But they were, their price is really low. So they wanted my, my client to, uh, engineer to give him a quote. He gave him a quote, but we prepared before we went to the meeting. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, they are going to ask you for a better price, no matter what you ask. And you have to believe that the price you're giving him is the best price. And just tell him that this is the best price. Sure enough, we go in, they're talking about the numbers and the estimated annual usage and uh, how much releases per for a blanket order, blah, blah, blah. So came down to price. We gave him the price and uh, the prospect says, oh, can you do a little better? And I can see the engineer trying to see how he can make it better. He's looking down. We already prepared. Yeah. But just because you've been built up and you want to sell that deal, as soon as someone asks you to be, can you do any better? A lot of people's reflexes, well, let me take a look. I saw him look down at the number. I wrote on my folder, best, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. But because he's already prepared, he put down his pen and looked up and, uh, and he was in a conference call. And he goes, no, that is the best price we've given you. And the tone was set in such a way, it was very definitive. It wasn't like, that is, that is the best price. He said, oh, that is the best price. Yeah. And guess what happened the other side? on the conference call, they go, oh, that's great. Your price actually looks much better than we thought. I was like, do you see that, guys? You are better than they thought, and they still were going to get you down on the price. Yep. Right? So it happens. <laughs> I mean, it happens. So the biggest last negotiation that I had was for my parents' house. I found out the reason why the guys wanted to sell it, and the house was at 230. I told them I'll pay 220. And I also want them to cover 5,000 closing costs. 
And uh, the realtor called me, he said, no, they said, no, they would like a new offer. And I said, well, if that's not an offer, I said, we'll move on to another house. We're not in a hurry. I said, that's the best offer. My parents have no idea, by the way, I'm negotiating for them because they just trusted me. Here's the power of attorney. You do everything. Nice. Took 20 minutes. The realtor calls me back. He said, okay, they thought about it. They're going to go with that offer amazing the only thing i had to say i said you know what we're not in a hurry there's a lot of houses out there this is the best offer for that house if we cannot then we'll look for another house it's okay wow you because they triggered their already of loss yes because they already were going to move outside of state mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they wanted to buy the house i looked online did the research saw how much they bought the house two years ago mm-hmm. and i already know, like i did my research so sometimes you have to be stubborn and say no this is the best price yeah. There is a lot of options out there. Thank you for your time, but we'll look for another one. And now you'll have the realtor working for his money and you'll have them fearing of loss for their yep. property, for their for their offer. You probably would not be able to do that and be that confident if you did not do the research. Oh no, just I yeah. like just like the engineer that I coach right before the meeting. And there was that split second going back to his old behavior and then going back to that is the best price. Yep. And that's why I started the conversation today with how important is the research? Because a lot of people tend to miss that research phase, no matter how much confidence you have. If you haven't done the research and you don't know who you're dealing with or the situation, then you're going to fail. Absolutely. Oh my god. You goodness. may have a little bit of success. And what I've seen is people feel like they have success because they're just simply taking an order. The other side is so desperate. They have no option. And they come to them and they buy because they just needed it. And he didn't have to prepare and go, see, I don't have to prepare. I still get the deal. Yeah. But if you break it down, that person was simply taking an order. So I, I done this episode before too. I split this, I split every person into apple, oranges, or coconuts. Have you ever heard that term? No, no. Apple, oranges, and coconut. So Apple deals are the deals that you'll just say one thing and those are the early adopters. They'll just buy whatever it's out there because it's cool and they just got an offer. So they'll just settle really easy. Oranges are the middle adopters, which we have to peel them off a little bit, you know, to enjoy the juicy orange in the middle. But it's just a little work, a little research, and you'll get to that. And coconuts are those that you have to bang it on the con- <laughs> on the concrete to open it and it's no not a lot of juice inside yeah. so you work with those oranges because it's 10 percent apple 80 percent oranges 10 percent coconuts so apples oh, are wow. nice to enjoy but oranges those are the juicy ones 80 percent. yes that's why you put the research and you learn the skills and techniques that's how i look at everybody are you not or coconut <laughs> i love that i love that that's uh, i learned something new today this is fantastic Now, I want to play a situation because I know we're kind of talking about situational and showing examples that we've experienced, but I want to, I want to kind of play a pitch elevator, elevator pitch. Um, So the situation would be you are the owner or the business consultant for this big roofing company. Okay. Okay. And you're on the elevator with me, which I'm the VP of FEMA. FEMA, okay. And the state of Florida just got hit by crazy hurricanes. Like we get them all the time here. Okay. And I need to contract a company or somebody 
to fix 25,000 houses, to fix the roofs of them. Okay. Okay. So you are going to do an elevator pitch and close me to why I should hire your company for those 25,000 houses, which means it's a huge contract for you. And we're looking at about two year process to close those houses and, you know, rebuild them. Right. Whenever you're ready. An el uh, in terms of an elevator pitch to showcase what we do, we help people protect their property and lives by building quality roofs. That's what we do. Is that something that you guys would be interested in? Absolutely. That's what FEMA is about, but I have 25,000 houses. Can you get them done in a year and a half? In a year and a half? It sounds like the, the time frame is very important to you guys. Absolutely. What other, what other uh, alternatives have you considered? I have another company offering me to do the same job in a year and a half. So why should I hire you for the roofing? Oh, in a year and a half. Well, the reason that people come to us is because we build quality roofs. I may be able to do it in a year and a half, but what I really care about for our clients is to help protect their, their property and people's lives. So we may take the time and make sure it's of high quality. So let me go back up a little bit and ask you a question. When you first selected us or asked us to reach out to us, what is it about our company that caught your attention? The five-star credibility that you guys have with Business Better Bureaus. Exactly. I know that you have 25,000 homes, and I know that another person said they can do it in a year and a half. But what I'm trying to guarantee you is that when you have us do the roof, the roof will be guaranteed for 25 to 30 years, even if there's a hurricane, and people's lives will not be at stake in order to meet a timeline. The lives and their property is more important to us, and the, re the reason we have a five-star rating and credibility is because we care about doing things the right way. And you said you give 20 to 30 years of uh, guaranteed for the roof? Absolutely. Okay. That's why we have five-star uh, credit rating. The other, the other company gave me 15 years. So I think our customers would be a lot happier with 20 to 30 years. That's fantastic. Look, you don't really want to come back to us every five years after a hurricane and ha have us rebuild a roof to you. You want to make sure that the roof lasts, right? Well, I'll come back to you if we have another crazy tornado or crazy hurricane in the area. That's for sure. Well, after we build these uh, 25,000, if there's any other part in the world or other part of the country that you need help with, we would love to come over and take care of those problems for you. Nice. So I love it. And I want to kind of break it down. Okay. Because you touch the emotions, safe, make family safe and feel protected. You touched quality. You also deeper questions to why you chose us, why you gave us the opportunity, because you're not just a random selection to have this meeting. And 20 to 30 years, you just dropped a number in there, which most of the companies for roofing, I actually know this because I was looking for a new roof. <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> most of the companies are about 15 to 20 years. I just went out of business. Did I just lose money on that roof? <laughs> No, but actually that's very good. So it goes a little bit more research. So if I am the FEMA 
uh, VP, I already know that the customers are going to save money on their insurance for a new roof. They're going to save right. money if they have guarantees. So on my own, like I know the research behind. So emotions, quality, time frame, touch better business bureaus, guarantee, and the time frame. You still didn't close me on the time frame. Guaranteed me a year and a half, but the time frame is uh, is arbitrary because it was set by my competitor, right? You said my competitor can do in a year and a half, and Correct. I don't I don't care about it because I only care about quality for you. Okay, but you didn't say, "Oh no, we cannot do it." You yeah. still hit that. I dodged it because I don't really know whether we can build it in twenty, you know, twenty five thousand in a year and a half. And that's smart. So hit the the hot spots. Hit the the most important ones, which what a family would care about. Absolutely. I like this. I because like the I can institutional do it in, ones. What if I solve 25,000 homes and I just put a tarp over it? I can do it in a, in a week, right? But that's yeah. not going to solve your real problem. And you mentioned hurricane resistant too, so. Exactly. Nice. I like that. <laughs> well, that was fun, Romina. Well, I have a bonus question for you, though. Okay. Uh, okay. So, as we know, a couple of days ago, I talked to two negotiating masters, like Kwame Christian and Dan Oblinger. Yes, I know and, them well. Cool, awesome. So, when I asked them the definition of a great uh, negotiation, they actually agreed to the idea of having a win-win situation. So, I wanted to ask you, how right are they to think that? Did they say... Uh... Let, let me reframe that and make sure I got that right. They, they Both Kwame and, and uh, Dan uh, imply that a win-win situation is very important in the negotiation. Mm -hmm. And how do I see that? Yeah. I see that as a wrong way or, or an erroneous mindset to enter into a negotiation. When we go into a negotiation, we should not think about win-win because win implies someone is losing already. So there's a debt that the word that the definition by itself is telling you that you're thinking in the wrong way. It's nice to think of win-win and it's a, it's a semantic, right? Well, you get to get everything you want and I get everything I want. That's how we negotiate. I will help my client get everything they want, move their mission and purpose forward and help their counterpart do the same. And if there is a time where that is not going to happen, it's better to have no deal. Now, the outcome is different from entering into a negotiation. The outcome of both parties negotiating well is both parties moving their mission and purpose forward. And I still wouldn't call it a win-win because there is something wrong with that definition. Okay. But I don't believe in someone having to lose. I would rather just not make the deal. So there's subtle, there's a, these are subtle mindset. But if I have to go into a negotiation thinking I have to win and my counterpart has to win, I'm already going in willing to compromise. What if my counterpart doesn't want to compromise? How am I supposed to know when they propose a win-win that they are willing to compromise? Just think about that a minute. How do I really know they're willing to compromise? No one knows. Yeah, no. no one knows. So if I'm willing to compromise and the other side is not willing to compromise, it may actually maybe lie about wanting to compromise, who is going to lose? Me. 
and I'm not interested in my clients losing. That's not why they come to me, right? In fact, seldom is anyone in a competition. When someone came to you to buy a car and you think about win-win, what does that mean? You split a car, right? Uh, uh, you take one part of the car and I'll take the other part of the car and you take half the money, I'll take the other half of the money. No, the person wants a reliable, dependable car or a car that will enhance the image and they're willing to pay for that. And there's a price for that. What people are trying to do is they're trying to narrow one term, which is the money, and call that the win-win. I'll give you a quick example. My client has a customer. Customer is not getting the products on time. And it's been delayed months and months and months. It's been going on for a long time. My client is just telling their customer, look, you need to, you need to give us better forecasts, give us better numbers, give us, give us more orders so that I can place more orders for you and I can give it to you, I can, I can give you the product when you want it. But the way they asked came across as, I want more work from you. I want more work from you. And they were getting upset. They were not getting the products on time. They're like, you cannot even get my products that I just ordered on time. And you want more products? I'm going to, I'm going to uh, go to a competitor. So what I need you to do is I'm gonna, I need you to expedite these parts. So the win-win and at that point was to get the customer what they want. And by doing that, my client was having to call their suppliers and, and negotiate and beat them down. And there was no way they could get to that point. So what did they really need? They needed, my client needed my, their customer to place a blanket purchase order. That would solve the real problem. No one compromised. Their customer didn't have to, my client's customer didn't have to take products at a longer time frame. My customer didn't have to order things and put it in inventory, hoping they would sell it one day, but there's no protection. What they really wanted is they wanted the protection of a blanket PO so that they can, so at this point, it took a little bit longer time, maybe, mm -hmm. At this point, it's gone for maybe eight weeks. By the time we found out what the real problem was, we negotiated and got it done in two weeks. But for eight weeks, they're haggling over expediting an order, uh, trying to get everyone to just move it by a few days when in fact they wanted, few, they wanted a few months early, right? So compromising didn't work. Finding out what the real mission and purpose was, getting the products on time, having products that they can, they can adjust to a spike in, in, uh, in sales was what they wanted. And my, my client was willing to order and put in an inventory, but without protection, they're just not going to do it. So we negotiated a blanket PO and everyone felt safe. So there was no compromise whatsoever. Nice. None. But it takes time and it takes work. So that was not their definition of a great negotiation, by the way. <laughs> I am sure we'll arm wrestle when we meet each other. <laughs> but when I asked them, what should I ask you? That's what they told me. And I'm glad I asked them because we dived into a ver some very key important factors when it comes to a great negotiation. But they were very passionate. They're like, you have to ask Alan this question. I said, okay. <laughs> Now, I joke about this. Go ahead. 
And I'm like, okay, guys, well, here's your, you know, you guys are friends. So, <laughs> so that was their question for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I joke about it because I have to negotiate. My clients have to negotiate against like purchases for Walmart, Kmart, and Target. Yeah. And those guys always say, hey, guys, we just want a win-win agreement here. I will buy a whole lot more from you if you give me the lowest possible price. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what that means is you work for you work a lot and get paid for little. For little, yeah. Or you can sell instead of selling one thousand, you can sell a hundred with just a little bit more price, and the bottom line would be the same. So work hard, work smarter, not harder. Exactly. <laughs> now um, I'll do the editing for this one. Okay. So we'll jump to the next question, and we have two. Two more, three more questions. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so I want to know what was um, a complex negotiation or a negotiation that you might have not gone the way you wanted to. And I want to see if you were to rebuild the situation, what would have done differently? A complex situation. Well, those are the, those maybe two different scenarios one that uh, didn't go the way that i wanted it to go and another negotiation where it was complex it wasn't complicated but it was just complex in that it had many different layers to it uh, my client had to negotiate with a long time customer of maybe 18 years at the time and by the time i got pulled into that project um, I got an email saying that um, you guys have failed us for so long and um, your mission and purpose said blah, 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 giving the delivering quality at, you know, and they said laughable. And that's how I got pulled into it. And when I got into it, my client, in fact, was delivering defective products, products that was leaking in the field. These are manifolds. Manifolds for heavy equipment that was uh, leak, uh, leaking oil, and that could be a danger, right? And uh, and they wanted my client to um, absorb the payment. I mean, the the cost of tearing it down and shipping it back and redoing it and getting new parts. So uh, the first problem we had to to look into was who was the cause of it? Because there was too many steps. There was a company that did the machining, a company that made the, the metal castings. And so it was, it was complicated to find out whose finger we should be pointing at. Was mm -hmm. it us, our supplier, uh, or even the customer? But it looked like initially that the customer was right, the parts was failing. Mm -hmm. Come to find out the customer had wanted to have these parts made offshore and it was very difficult. They couldn't get it done. They asked my clients to make it as a favor, as a favor to them. And so it became a, a problem. And so the first step was to turn around the perception. Everything else that we, we made for them was high, like perfect. Out of maybe a million parts, there was no defect except for this one component. So initially, my client's account manager wanted to compromise. That's just a natural result. But the complexity was that we were make, doing them a favor, and my first step was to show them 
that we were doing them a favor. But I couldn't say that. You can't just say, hey, we're doing you a favor. So the way we delivered was, yes, you're mad at us. You deserve to be mad at us. You have every right to be mad at us. We failed you. And it's very difficult to make. And I said, it looks like we should never have accepted this project in the first place. We didn't want to, but we did it because you have been a great customer. And as you can see, all the stuff we made for you is great. This part was problematic and we didn't want to take in the first place. I know you wanted to take it offshore and you couldn't get it done. Our mistake wasn't accepting that for you. Why don't you tell us where you want us to ship these patterns and we will ship it and transition it to a competitor? Guess what he said? No, 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 no. That will be the last thing we want from you guys. So the perception of him yelling at us to us doing him a favor and all that was immediately turned around in one call. I see. The second step was how are we going to fix this? Come to find out it wasn't our suppliers and everything. It was the engineers of this company that made the spec of this product a lower quality so these problems could arise. But these problems should have been caught by a testing facility. They had to test every single part before they put in the equipment. But they they didn't want to spec it to a higher level because that will cost astronomically. You're making aerospace stuff at that point. And they didn't want to pay for that, so they lowered the specification and that allowed some of these failures to happen. And so they had an option, make it to a higher spec, which my client did. My client made it to spec. We can make it to a higher spec or you can do X, Y, Z and test everything. And guess what they did? No compromise on anyone else. They didn't compromise on their quality. They, they built a testing facility for every single part. Oh, wow. Correct. My client continued to deliver those parts and never had to absorb $1. So, but the thing is, initially it was easy to absorb a little bit. But when you talk about potentially thousands you got to fix, that's not, we're talking about millions. I don't want my client to be having to, to deal with that. So that was a very complex, many different layers. Then you have to get into engineers. I had to get engineers on my client involved. I had to get engineers on the, my client's customers involved. And we had to look into the terms and specifications and what it meant. Like what does an X-ray to a certain level mean? And I was like, I just coach negotiation. Now I'm getting into the dirt level, not the weed level, the dirt level, right? So that was, that was complex. It was fun. Everything turned around. Uh, still customers after many years now. I mean, I, I want to kind of go back to a little bit how you, you strategically did not say we're doing you a favor, but the way like you laid out everything and it was a no, no, no on the other end, that's very strategic and that's very smart. And a lot of people sometimes like somebody else might've said, you know what, we're just doing you a favor. Exactly. That's ruining relationships right there and losing a lot of money. Exactly. A lot of people would have, they, they want, my client wanted to say that. So what we did is we, we sat down in a room and we planned how we were going to say it. So what is it that you want to say? We want to tell them that we're doing them a favor, but you can't say that. Just like you cannot talk to a, to a counterpart and just say, are you a decision maker? You can't say that. So the best way to say that is, well, who else needs to be involved 
at this stage of the negotiation? Are you responsible for the decision moving forward? Without saying, are you the decision maker? Should we? Should you be the only person that we should be talking to? Right. So、mm-hmm. it's threatening. We're doing、yep. you a favor. It's threatening, but when we gave them the right to reject us, well, we we made a mistake of taking this project. If you want us to move it to our competitor or, or your preferred supplier, you let us know. Nice. That I like that. Thank you for sharing that. Now I I feel like I'm learning a lot of new stuff and I'm loving this conversation and it's been about over an hour of great amazing information that our audio listeners are actually、uh, getting from you which I definitely want them to connect with you Alan so I'm gonna attach all the information but where can they find you besides LinkedIn what's your website the website is eighty eight as in the number eighty eight and then the the bird owls O W L S dot com eighty eight owls dot com. Why owls? owls? Night vision. Well, <laughs> it's a that vision is definitely one. You know, the owls is a actually a a great companion to farmers. I look at businesses like a farm. There's a natural order to them: sowing seeds, watering it, and then the harvest. Right? And and、uh, Stephen Covey talked about that. There's a natural order to that. And business owners are like farmers, so what's better for a farm than having an owl have a special、uh, ability to see in the dark? They had they 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 have great perspective. They like to work alone. They they remove pests for the farmers. They don't cost the farm anything. They bring benefit and no cost. I was wondering that. I'm glad I asked. I was wondering why I said owls. And owls are seldom seen. I mean, you do see them, but they, you don't see a lot of it. You don't see a lot of negotiators out there. In fact, to my clients, I am kind of like their secret weapon that they don't like sharing about all the time. Which works out. Yes. <laughs> and what's a new and exciting project that you might be working towards? I know you currently do have eBooks online. Is there an event or anything you'd like to share with the audience? Yes, I am. I'm、uh, launching some training and、uh, speaking with、uh, Gary Nasner. He was the FBI chief、uh, hostage and crisis negotiator for twenty something years, and he was the first person to hold that position. He's retired now, and I love him. He's my mentor, and we go around uh, uh, working with companies and, and speaking. So、uh, there's one that's up and coming. I'm working on at the Corporate Research Center and.、Uh, In Blacksburg, at、uh, near Virginia Tech. Nice, that's amazing. So, as you can tell, guys, we're dealing with big time negotiators here. So, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Thanks, Ramina. <laughs> Absolutely, and for another exciting project, I know I mentioned this a little bit on a previous episode with Dan and Kwame, but just look out for future details. Stay tuned, guys, for Alan, Kwame, and Dan being in Florida soon. For an、yes. awesome event, so stay tuned for that. And、um, Alan, my very last question. Yes. What is your personal definition of success? Wow, that is that is the one question everyone in life wants to answer, right? The way I look at it is quite simple. I know for some people it's about making a lot of money, maybe having a jet or having a great car or whatever. I I don't. I look at it as I wake up in the morning, 
And then I wake, I go to bed at night and in between I do the things that I like and the things that I like is helping people make better decisions. Negotiation is just part of that. So at work, I help professionals and business owners and executives make great, uh, higher quality decisions. And then at home, I help my, my kids develop the skills to make good decisions, making good, the right friends, choosing the right college, the right career. All those is just, at the end of the day, is learning to make better decisions. I love it. That's very simple, learning to make better decisions. I mean, make your today better than yesterday and improve every day, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Awesome. So each day, the way I look at it is, have I made good decisions today? Have I helped people make better decisions? And if I do, then I, I had a great day. I love it. Thank you so much, Alan, for being a part of RM Podcast. Alan, thank you for taking your time. I know this episode comes on a Tuesday, but you guys, it's the weekend when we're recording <laughs> this. So he's taking his time this Saturday morning to be a part of the show. It's my pleasure, Romina. You are so easy to talk to. I love it. I've been looking forward to this. I know Dan and Kwame have spoken to you, spoke highly of you. Uh, I, yeah, today has been, it's been a lot of fun. I love it. Thank you. And for all you, my great listeners out there, if you want to listen to cool and awesome episodes just like this one, make sure to tune in every Tuesday on RM Podcast FL, wherever you get your podcast juice from. Or you can always go to www.rmpodcastfl.com. Thank you for tuning in, guys.